Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jason Knight, and on each episode of this podcast, I speak to some of the best and brightest product and product-related thought leaders and practitioners I can find to help inspire all of us to make great products, great product teams, and great product companies. If that sounds like the sort of thing you'd like to have more of in your life, why not head over to onenightinproduct.com where you can check out all of my other podcast episodes, sign up for the newsletter, join my Slack community, or come to one of my virtual or live networking events to meet interesting new people and start building empathy with them. On tonight's episode, we stand up for the user. We make sure that we keep them at the heart of our decision-making and don't just pay lip service to solving their most important problems. We also stand up for user research and having good conversations with these people to find out the truth, and also for user researchers themselves. Investigate whether there's a problem with product management thought leadership and ask some tough questions about whether product managers are the golden children at startups or whether we're all in the same boat, which just happens to be sinking and on fire. For all this and much, much more, please join us on One Night in Product. So my guest tonight is Debbie Levitt. Debbie's a user and customer experience consultant, author, and self-styled Mary Poppins of CX. So I'm hoping for some tuneful songs and some enchanting animated adventures in this interview. And I'm very certain I can do justice to my role as the Dick Van Dyke of product management, although hopefully with a slightly better English accent. Ooh. (laughs) Debbie's a fierce advocate for the craft of user research, and she's got some tough medicine for company leaders and even us product managers, but not a spoonful of sugar in sight. Debbie wants us to let research professionals get on with their jobs, allow them time to do them properly, and ultimately try to make sure that our customer experiences don't suck. Hi, Debbie. How are you tonight? Oh, super. Uh, happy to talk to you. I've got a, a little leftover anxiety from dealing with a bad product, but you know, we've all, we've all been there. So uh, I'll, <laughs> I'm just going to breathe through it and, uh, and hope someone's got empathy for me. How are you, Jason? I am doing wonderfully well. Right. First things first. I'm sure there's going to yes. be some areas that we differ on in this interview based on some of our previous chats. No problem. But I think there's also going to be a surprising amount of stuff that we agree on. So I want to start with the friendly stuff. But before we do any of that, I want to understand why are you the Mary Poppins of CX? Yeah, sure. So uh, I've been doing strategy, CX and UX in all kinds of different forms for coming up on 30 years now. And started in the mid 90s. And so my background is not art. You know, I think a lot of people hear UX and think of artsy fartsy hipsters, and that's definitely (laughs) not me. I came more from the problem finding, problem solving, and psychology side of things. And so I am a terrible artist. And so I got into research and design in um, 2010. I moved to San Francisco and I was doing a lot of UX work there for some time. And so, you know, I've got. I've got the CV that that matches the claims. And what was happening in the 2000s in San Francisco was I was doing a lot of contracting and freelancing. And whenever that project would be over, people would say to me as I am leaving the building, bye, Mary Poppins. And, you know, I think they thought it was funny. And I, at first I thought that's cute. And then it started happening more often. And that just seemed to be people's impression of me that I had flown in fixed everything I could, sang a few songs, and now I was flying away. And and I think at some point I thought, I think that's just going to be kind of be my brand or tagline. And and the great thing about it is I didn't name myself that. It really came from other people seeing me that way. 
Well, there you go. Bottoms up innovation. It's funny, though, because I do know, obviously, appreciate that whole kind of going in, fixing the problem and getting back out again. (laughs) Although I've maybe in the R-rated version of that started to kind of almost think of the, not necessarily me, but the contractors in general as almost like Winston Wolf from Pulp Fiction kind of go in. They've got blood all over the car. They need to pick the brains (laughs) out of the upholstery and then they need to get out again and uh, almost be like the Winston Wolf of product management. But uh, I think the problem with that imagery is that no one wants to admit that they've got blood all over the inside of the car. So uh, quite challenging positioning there. But this, <laughs> but this does beg another question, sure. which is you talk a lot about user research, user experience, customer experience. Yeah. And some people may not certainly know the difference between user experience and customer experience as practices. So how are you specifically defining those two things, user experience and customer experience? And do you consider them different? Yeah. So. Once upon a time when the word or words user experience were coined, the original intention of them was that it would represent absolutely everything that the user was experiencing. What sometimes we now think of as like a complete customer journey or everything that would show up in a service blueprint from, gee, I think I need a widget to let's look at some different companies and and make a decision. And then I'm going to do business with a company. And then what happens afterward? And And so Originally, the user experience was a term to look at all of that. But somehow over the years, I don't know who changed it, but it kind of evolved into just (laughs) looking as terms sometimes get out of our control and change. It became more like, well, these are just digital experiences. So if you work in UX, you are probably designing some sort of screen, whether that's a phone or, or a computer or a watch or a kiosk or something else. And so a lot of people think, oh, UX, those are just digital designers. But especially some of us older school people, we got into this for that kind of larger problem-finding, problem-solving strategic adventure where we, in some cases, some of us see ourselves almost as service designers where we're not just looking at what's going on with this person and this screen, but we're looking at that larger journey, the larger context. And so What I found is that at some companies, especially where UX is just you design a screen, stay in your box, they sometimes see customer experience as that full journey. What happens when the customer first starts thinking about doing business with us all the way through? Can we get them to recommend us and be loyal and stay in the whole thing? And so I think that when they're done well, they can be the same thing. Sometimes people draw the line between a customer pays you and a user doesn't. And I think that as soon as we draw that line, we start drawing other lines and we start separating people out in ways that sometimes make sense and sometimes don't. I've seen a lot of companies say, well, we're just going to cater to the customers because that's where we make our money and F the user. You know, absolutely F them, nudge them. They're a pawn on a dashboard. Make them do the things we want. Who cares what they need? Just talk to the paying customer nice, nice paying customer. And so I think that we've (laughs) created a lot of divides. And so I think ultimately, if we are thinking, I say, don't think of it so much as customer experience or user experience, but it's really the ecosystem. And no, I'm not going to try to coin ecosystem experience, trademark symbol. You know, we don't need more terms. I think the bottom line is, it's not so much about the terms. It's really about what are we doing for any of the people that make our business grow and succeed. Because whether you're paying or not paying, you're part of the ecosystem, and we probably can't do without you. Well, I can definitely agree with that. But outside of the consulting work, you've written several books about that and around the topic as well. And the one that's top of mind that I know that 
you had in your hands at the uh, beginning of the interview as well. Uh, customers know you suck. Now, in some places I've worked at or with, I think it's pretty obvious that customers know that we suck. But <laughs> what's the overall value proposition of that book? Who's it aimed at and why should they buy it? Yeah. And again, you don't even have to buy it. I do offer it for free in a couple of spots. You can check oh, it out. That's at, user-centric, that is. That's really user-centric. I know. No Forgi- customers at all for you. Forgive my moment of non-capitalism, but I, I would just love to get it out there. Uh, so you can go to cxcc.to slash cKYS and you can find where you can throw your money at me or not for for all of the different formats in which we have it. But basically, the book was written for everybody. People think, oh, Debbie's from CX and UX. She wrote this for CX and UX people. I don't need to read it. It's actually written more for non-CX and non-UX people. It assumes that you might not know a lot about that area. You might not even work in that area. You're probably a product manager, a marketer, an engineer, a strategist, a leader of some sort. And you're looking at your dashboards. You're looking at your KPIs and you're saying, something's wrong here. We're not able to win customers the way we thought we could. We're not able to keep them. Our satisfaction scores, our NPS, and whatever we're doing, it's not where we thought it should be. We have a lot of failures. We're we're seeing experiment failures, product launch failures, and and other failures. We're seeing high customer support utilization because people don't like things and they complain and they need help. You're sitting there looking at all of that. And and again, you probably work in product or, or marketing or leadership. And you're thinking, what are we getting wrong here? And to me, some of the answer, not all of it, but some of it is probably going to be, where is the customer or user in these conversations, strategies, decisions? And so the book is really about empowering anyone who's reading it, empowering them to have some, first of all, how did we get here? And how do we create something new and better and different that is going to really support balancing, and this is where people often get me wrong, balancing business goals with customer and user needs. Just because I am a a customer centricity person in air quotes or not air quotes, doesn't mean I'm anti-business or or any of those things. I have an MBA. I I have a business. I want to see people succeed and make money. (laughs) But I know that we have to balance that with what our customers and users need. And I believe that the best way, the best path to business success is through happy customers who naturally want what we're offering and can't wait to throw our money at us and and want to tell friends naturally and things like that. So I, I would have to say that was the medium-sized value proposition for the book. Sorry, <laughs> it, I'm a little bit of a talker, as some people know. No, that's fine. It's not so much an elevator pitch as, I don't know, sort of escalator pitch. You know, you've got the whole journey to get through that. Yeah, a long Italian stroll pitch. <laughs> Well, you're in Italy now as well, right? So you've probably yes. got used to that that, that yes. length of conversation. But one of the things that I've thought about a lot and discussed a lot with other authors from all around different fields is the difficulty that people and authors can have when they try and sell that message in a book, which some people are potentially going to look at and think, oh, great, another book. Or they'll be like, oh, this is too theoretical, or it's just the way that it works in theory or idealistically or whatever. And obviously, as you just say, you're not against, for example, people making money, like you want there to be good outcomes for everyone and for the balance to be right and all of that stuff. But is it easy and have you found it easy to kind of go up to someone, wave your book at them and change their mind? Or do you feel that this is more something that preaches to the converted? 
It's actually both at this time. So I would say that some people, uh, to me, the best thing is the the book kind of looks at things in different levels. So if you're not in a super strategic job, there's still things in the book that are more tactical that where I say, try this, just bring this to your team, try something new. We're supposed to be experimental, right? We're supposed to be open to trying new things. We're supposed to be agile. And so uh, we're supposed to have empathy, right? I, I love all the buzzwords, but There are things in the book where I say, hey, look, I'm not asking you to change the entire system overnight. We can't always defeat the man, but there are still (laughs) things that I recommend, some techniques, some conversations, some things you can try in your processes and see if that moves the needle at all. And so far, I've been getting really good feedback from people. And also the book says very clearly, look, this is what I do. But it may or may not work for you, but it's a starting point. Why don't you try starting here with this technique, with this approach, with this method or, or whatever it might be, and see how it goes for your particular company, for your particular product, and adjust as needed. You know, I always say to people, take whatever you can from stuff. Sometimes people say, hey, I read so-and-so's book, and so-and-so might be someone I tend to heavily disagree with. And People will say, what do you think? And I'll say, look, if you can get something good out of that book, use it. Just because I don't like that person or I tend to disagree with them doesn't mean that they have zero good things to say or zero (laughs) ideas. You know, even if there's someone who you think I'm famously against, there's got to be something in there that that is helpful that we can latch on to. And I think that that's an important way to go. You know, for example, we talk about we fight a lot over what's the value of research. If you have an author that says, research is valuable, we should do research. Research should happen at multiple times in a project. Research is important at the beginning. Research is important later on. Then I think that's something a lot of people can agree with. Now, they're not necessarily going to agree with how much research do we do? What type is it? Who does it? Okay, that has to be sorted out for each company and, and the questions we want answered and who we've hired and And that's going to be a little bit mushier. But I think if we can all start at a place where we we agree on something like research is valuable and pretty much every book we've read has said research is important and companies we admire use research a lot. They still have R&D teams, which most other companies got rid of thinking they were slow, but the, the companies we admire the most still have those teams and know that they're important. So Like, I wish that we could all, even where we do disagree, I wish we could all get together and at least find those foundations where we do agree and then try some different things from there. And that's why I even say in my book, look, if you're going to experiment with who does research, maybe it's researchers, maybe it's non-researchers, maybe it's newbie researchers, maybe it's experienced researchers, maybe it's people who know nothing about research. Look, you can experiment with all these things. And my book even says that. But then my book says, here's how you need to have standards, accountability, and governance. Because experimenting is fine, but who's minding the store? You know, we have to say, okay, we're going to have different people try research. Okay, what's our standard? What does it look like for research to have been done well? What does it look like for research to be a bit crap? What do we do if it is a bit crap? You know, do we just say, cool, that was crap, keep going? Or do we stop it? Do we change it? And so that's really what my book says is ultimately, if something is really going well for a company, it's hard for me to say, you're doing it wrong. You know, I, <laughs> as a musician- You can say I, that I, if you want. You can say it if you want. I 
can say it, but it doesn't even make sense. You know, it, the same thing happens in UX research. Sometimes we look at something and we say, oh, I don't think this idea is very good. It's, it's gonna, it's gonna suck. And then we test it and it goes great. Or, or the opposite. A lot of people like take, certainly UX and product managers all the time think they have a great idea. And then it, it gets tested or experimented on or it gets released and we find absolute carnage. And so there's always those surprises. And I think we should be open to those. But again, I think that we could reduce a lot of the, the fighting and disagreement that we have if we just had standards, accountability, and governance. If someone said, this is what good UX work looks like. This is what mediocre UX work looks like. This is what crap UX work looks like, <laughs> you know, and and this is when we're okay with crap UX work and we admit it. And this is when it's important to have really good UX work or even great. And then we say, okay, if, if it needs to be good or great, who's going to do it? Maybe this time it's not the PM. Maybe if we don't mind, if it's a little seat of pants and, and iffy, maybe a non-researcher does the research. But then I also say, watch for the outputs and watch for the outcomes. So I think that the message of the book isn't ultimately, you know, research is important and it only works when one person does it. Debbie Levitt, you know, like it, it you know, that's definitely not the, <laughs> the message. The message is there's lots of different messages out there and some of them are conflicting. And I want teams to have the empowerment and flexibility to try different things. Okay. So I agree with basically all of that. Cool. <laughs> it's very difficult to disagree with the idea that you should, yeah, certainly from my perspective, that you should try things. You should see what works. You should double down on what works and you should maybe pull back on the stuff that doesn't work and try and work out what works for you. And I'm a massive fan of context and doing what works in the context of your companies. Right. I will say that that's a very different and much more measured and somewhat more reasonable message than some of the stuff that's been flying around on LinkedIn recently. And I know that that's not all from you, by the way. There's obviously sure. a bunch of people in your replies that are kind of digging into people and, and digging into, you know, coming in with their own opinions and their own, their own attacks or, or otherwise. So do you feel that it's hard to kind of sell that message, like that more measured, reasonable message in the attention poor, doom scrolling sort of social media generation? Definitely. It's so hard because especially LinkedIn posts are what, 3,000 characters, and then a LinkedIn reply is limited to 1,250 characters. And so it's a step above tweeting. But you know we're all fighting in these short bursts. Whereas, for example, you just let me talk for what, three, four, five minutes in a row. It's very different than what if I had to reply to you in like, you know, these tiny, these tiny formats. And so, and then what ends up happening is sometimes you get people that there was somebody I was talking to on LinkedIn, who I later had a phone call with, and it went really well. But he kept in the comments, we kept going back and forth. And I was counting the number of different topics he brought up, because it was so hard to continue agreeing or disagreeing or arguing or debating or discussing with this person, because they'd be like, well, what about this? And I would say, that's the ninth thing you brought up. You know, it's it's so hard to try to have these conversations here, especially because this stuff is nuanced. And, and I think what's at the core of it is anybody from any side of the issue who says there's only one right way to do things is probably not going to want to hang out on my LinkedIn very much <laughs> and, you know, and, and may or may not like my book and et cetera, you know, may not be a match to my world because I'm as a critical thinking, problem finding, problem solving person, my thought is, okay, but what else can we know? And how, what other ways can we look at this? And so I think the problem with any kind of social media arguing is that it, it, it's not 
it's hard to have a really thoughtful conversation and to get into some of that nuance and especially especially and I could put up my triangle but no one will see it especially <laughs> when it becomes you know insults and ad hominem and and all of these things you know where we had people I I get all the time and I have this not just with product people I get it with agile supporters and other people who tend to not agree with me and they immediately just go for me personally you know well what do you know about blah 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 Okay, maybe I know nothing about it. So I'm asking, you know, or <laughs> like, okay, let's pretend I know nothing about it. Help me out here. Tell me something. You know, oh, you're not very professional. You're unprofessional. You know, essentially, the message is I'm not allowed to have an opinion. And I, at that point, you know, any sort of proper conversation breaks down. And I find that these are not conversations that would probably happen if I ran into these people at, say, a conference. If I ran into these people at a conference and I said, look, you know, I don't like this quote from this book, or I don't like the way the book makes it sound like researchers are optional or not important, or they coach, but they don't play or blah, blah, blah. I could have a conversation with someone about that if we have time. But when it's on LinkedIn and, or which is mostly where I hang out. And when people go straight for what a deeply evil person I am, you know, then what are we arguing? Because that, that's just designed to distract from the original topic. So I, I would like for people to, I always ask people before you press post or comment or submit, will you be proud of this later? Because I screenshot a couple of stuff and a couple of things in the last week that I'm not sure people were proud of the next day. So again, if I accept all of that, which I basically do, there's an obvious question. Sure. Why bother? Yeah, it's a great question. And so let's say, I think that the, the value is questionable because the, the, I mean, why bother? Now I get to talk to you. That seems cool. Well, that's exactly, you've proved my <laughs> point. Why bother, huh? Yeah. So I can, I will, you know, I, I can argue both sides. There's definitely a lot of good reasons to stay off something like LinkedIn or to minimize your LinkedIn involvement. We discuss this in my online community a lot. And a lot of people feel like, LinkedIn generally sucks, but I feel like if I want a job, I have to be there. Okay. But you don't have to necessarily press like on anything. You don't have to comment on things. Look for people talking about jobs and do your brain a favor. So why am I posting any of these other things on LinkedIn? Well, if I didn't, then I'm definitely just shouting in a forest. Because if I have ideas that I want to put out there, if I have techniques that I want to introduce or techniques that I want to evolve. I think a lot of people don't even realize that my third book says something different than my second book. My second book says something different from my first book because I'm evolving. And I think it's always strange to me when I see these very popular authors who never put out a second edition or never put out a follow-up book, like as in, I said that, it's perfect, leave me alone, let's not pretend anything's happened here. So I think, what is the purpose? So that to me, it's how can I reach people, help them feel heard and supported and understood, try to find something empowering that they can try in what's usually a, may I say, shitty workplace and bad situation? That's my question. And I know that to empower people and raise them up, sometimes I do have to poke at a couple of things. Sometimes I do have to question a commonly held idea or something we're all just on auto autopilot doing or a popular book or method. But in the end, my goal is always to make people feel empowered. I'm not poking at a popular author because I love drama. I hate 
drama. Good Lord. I hate drama. <laughs> I, do, I don't want the drama. I would love for everybody to be in peace and harmony and holding hands and, and doing something else. But I want people to think critically, question methods, question my methods, question authors, question me. And I feel like we've lost a lot of that. And people just go, great book. Everybody read it. My boss says we should do it. I'm a zombie. Tell me what to do. And, and I, I just want to inspire more critical thinking. And not everybody wants that. <laughs> well, that's definitely a problem. And I think we spoke before this recording started about the kind of the polarization. It's almost like a political thing, like Republicans yeah. and Democrats, right? Sure. But speaking of that polarization, I think one thing that is kind of a thread through certainly some of your work, and it's kind of in the book a little bit as well, I think you refer to PMs as the golden child. Yeah. And kind of Im imply that they're more worried about their status than doing the right things. And I'm sure that maybe you were just being provocative at that point. But is that something that you generally feel about PMs? Is that your experience of PMs? Like, I work in product management, right? I lead product teams. I'm trying to help make product people better. I speak to product managers all the time. And it feels to me that maybe not all of them, but many are singing a very similar song to what you sing about, for example, user researchers. Like they're these luxuries that people don't think that their jobs are anything special, that they can just do it all themselves and they don't let them do it the way they quote unquote think is proper. And it kind of feels like there's a almost people's front of Judea versus Judean people's front argument <laughs> thing going on here. Excellent reference. <laughs> like, you know, we're, we're, we're fighting each other and shouting and screaming and trying to sort of tear each other's faces off where we should really be uniting to face the common enemy, the dysfunctional company leaderships that don't value any of us. Like, does any of that resonate with you or are you still pretty anti-PM? Yeah, I'm definitely not anti-PM in, in any sense of the word. I've written down a couple of things while you were talking. So first, let's talk about the golden child thing. I definitely do think of PMs as golden children at this time, but not for the reasons you said. I think of them as golden children when I write to a company's tech support and I find a problem or give them a suggestion. And they go, thanks, I'll tell the product manager. And my thought is, okay, so, you know, there isn't a trio. There isn't, you know, th there's a lot of information in, in that. Because sometimes I'm saying, can you please tell your UX person, blah, blah, blah. And they'll understand what I'm saying because they'll speak my language. And they write back and they go, I'll, I'll tell the product manager. So I think that the PMs are the golden child in that they are just kind of the star of the show. And right now, they, even though, yes, at many jobs, they are pooped on, they are order takers, they're not happy with their status or utilization. I completely agree with you. And I want to see them empowered. I want to see them strategic. And part of my book is about that as well. But I think that at companies right now, you know, I'm old enough to have seen the power shift. 10 years ago, PMs were hiding in a corner with me as we feared the great agilists and scrum masters and, and people <laughs> who were coming from engineering saying, F you PMs, this is how we work. You know, here's our holy Bible. F you UX, you know, you're just a bunch of wacky little artsy fartsy hipsters. This is engineering. You're going to work in sprints. You're going to do what we say. And PMs hid in a corner with us. And then somewhere, you know, a couple of books came out, power shifted. And now engineers are often hiding in a corner with UX and PMs, you know, again, even when they feel like they're order takers and they're not in a good place, they still very much have power. And they are very much, very often, not always, but very often they are saying, well, look, I'm responsible for the product. I'm accountable for the product. So 
I need to make this decision, whether or not that's what the trio wanted or whether or not there is a trio. You know, I'm going to make this decision or I'm going to pursue this direction or because I'm going to be held responsible for this later, it better be, I'm going to come up with the idea. This is my solution. No UX, I don't want to hear your solution. This is my solution. Now, again, that's not every PM. And I don't want the people listening to be like, that's what she thinks I'm doing. No, I don't know you. You you might be one of the many good ones out there. And I've had some good ones. But I do, between what I've experienced at my own jobs and what my community of thousands of, if not tens of thousands of people come back to me and say, listen to this weird crap I'm dealing with with a PM. We know that this exists. Okay, it may not be Jason. It may not be you, the listener. But I think we all know that this does happen. And so that to me is where as soon as we have that power imbalance, I think we need to have some tough conversations. And that's why part of my book talks about empowerment. Even a trio can be disempowering to the people not in the trio. And when we have a trio, how empowered is that trio? Because even at companies where there is a trio, I'll often hear, say from the UX person, I don't get to estimate my time. I don't get to talk about what I need to do for my part of the project to be successful. I'm not allowed to involve users or archetypal users in my work, in my research or my design. I'm given 30 seconds to do what I need days or weeks for. And then because we have no accountability, nobody's looking at this later. Nobody's saying, ah, you know, this process is kind of broken. We expected expert, fantastic, genius work from our designer. We gave them 30 seconds and no resources to do it. We shouldn't be completely surprised that it turned out a bit crap. But at (laughs) at least we would then have some accountability in place where we could say, aha, the root cause of some of our problem was some bad design. What's the root cause of the bad design? Does our designer suck? Maybe, maybe not. Some of them do, unfortunately. But if we had a good designer, did we give that person what they need to succeed? Did we set that person up to fail? And even a tougher question at some companies is, is the designer's work or does the designer's work match the job description with which you lured them into the job? Because many of our job descriptions talk about you're going to delight customers. You're going to have empathy and build empathy. You're going to evangelize a user-centric message across our organization. And then you get there and the product manager says, I have the idea. This is the solution. Make me the screens. Yeah. And again, I can't for a second say that that dynamic doesn't happen. And I do agree that there are yeah, I mean, obviously there are bad designers and there are bad product managers and there are bad developers and there are bad everyone out there, right? For sure. And I think that that is a problem that hopefully each one of those pillars is looking or trying to look at with their own thought leaders. Everyone's got their own you or their own Teresa Torres is right. Like, hopefully between us, we're going to try and work in the same direction. But it feels, obviously, with those two examples specifically, like you and Teresa, which is where maybe we first started talking about this stuff, there, there has been a bit of a, in Britain, maybe we call it a ding-dong between the two of you about <laughs> her approach from her book, Continuous Discovery Habits, which advocates an approach that I think it's fair to say that you're not a massive fan of, uh, or certainly not some of the stuff that has been written about that approach, as well as obviously some of the things in the book and some of the impacts that you believe that it's had on user research. So I'm sure there are many things. 
But what's your main or are your main few problems with the continuous discovery approach that's championed by Teresa and some of her fans? Yeah, I think in general, whether it's Teresa or not, we're all in a universe right now that seems to prize and prioritize speed over quality. Ultimately, it just sounds like the most important thing our company, our teams, our workers can do is be fast, is just get it done. And we seem to care less and less about the quality of how any of this was done. Now, there's echoes of that in Teresa's book. There's moments in in Teresa's work where it sounds like she cares about the quality. But there's also moments in her blogs and LinkedIn posts and other stuff where it sounds like quality is less important. We got to be fast. And I think that that is a common view right now, but we've been doing fast long enough to ask ourselves some tough questions about how well it's working. You know, we started our conversation where I talked about all the people sitting at meetings, shrugging at each other, looking at their numbers and metrics and KPIs and, and, and saying, this isn't right. We're not meeting our goals. We're not winning people. We're not keeping people. We're not making them happy. So my question is, if we're still in this universe in which we're not doing a great job meeting those goals. Now, I, I'm a root causes person. I'm a fine problem finder, problem solver, Mary Poppins, fix the things person. And so I look at that and I go, all right, let's, let's start pulling away some layers of the onion here. What's going on? And again, it just seems like no matter who the author is, because I'm not going to poke specifically at Teresa, it could be any book or person out there. There's even people from UX who you would think are on my team. And they're definitely not because they're writing books and doing other things that are the opposite of what I say. And so there's no assumption that all the UX people feel the same and certainly all the product people don't feel the same. But I think we have to take a real long, hard look for one core root cause, speed over quality. It just seems like we don't really care about outputs. What's the output? As somebody did research. Was the research done well? I don't know. Is the data accurate? Maybe some of it. You know, we, we've got all these outputs, but we're not as concerned with their quality. And then we say, well, it's outcomes over outputs. And I say, okay, but I'm still concerned about our outputs. And I'm concerned about the work that led to the outputs. But sure, let's look at the outcomes. What's going on in the outcomes? Well, we've got super high failure rates that at this point, companies seem to be boasting about because they're afraid to say that the, the emperor's not wearing any clothes. We're just going to pretend high failure rates are good, but there's certainly no business course that would tell you high failure rates are, are good, or at least no business course I would have faith in. And so we have, we've now surrounded ourselves in cotton wool. You know, we've just basically found a way to make a lot of excuses for why we just need to go fast. But I think we don't stop and think or even map out or do the math on how slow are we and how much does it cost us and what is some of the other carnage and shrapnel and costs of poor quality and consequences when we go that fast? We think we're fast releasing garbage to the customers. Whenever I speak at an agile or engineering conference and there's hundreds of engineers and product managers and product owners in the audience, I say, hands up. How many of you, while building something, knew it was wrong for the customer? Every hand goes up. So congratulations on your outputs. Congratulations if you can manipulate some sort of outcome to make it look like maybe somebody half liked this. But I'm, I would say 
companies have become good at fast without seeing how slow fast really is, how slow the path to real success and growth is by pretending we're fast and by putting quality on the side. We, we're not, we, we have no accountability anymore. We have very few standards. And we're at the point where we just want everyone to be a broad generalist. Product manager is going to write some code. Product manager is going to make a marketing campaign. Product manager, engineer is going to make some UX designs. And it's like, these are actually specialized jobs that we open up, that we interview people for weeks for. And then we, then they get there and we act like, you're not so important. I'm going to have this other person who knows nothing about what you do, do your work. So it is a hub and spoke problem. There's lots of, of spokes here and we could talk about them for days, but I think at the hub are things like quality and its lack, accountability and its lack, speed. You know, even a factory floor doesn't turn the machines up to a hundred percent of their speed, certainly not 110% of their speed. They have to balance that with the defects rolling off the line the safety, pro the arms that got chopped off when the machine went so fast. And we, we're not doing that kind of thing in digital. We just think, keep going fast, make people work faster, burn them out, replace them, burn them out, lay them off, bring in somebody else cheaper. And then we all look at each other and go, why don't customers give us higher scores? <laughs> okay, so if we accept all of that for a second. Optional. I mean, first of all, I, as you were talking, I was thinking, well, you know, I'm sure that some companies could slow down and still have the same problems, right? Because it's not necessarily, sure. you know, they could go slow and they could still make the same, the same bad decisions. But a lot of the time, that speed, it, it, it's kind of, it's driven from elsewhere, right? Like it's not coming even necessarily from the product managers, it's coming from the leaders, maybe it's coming from the investors, and it's kind of hard to push back. So if you ever managed to kind of come up with an evidence-based or an approach that works with, for example, founders, investors, people that are looking for results and God damn it, they're looking for them now. Because that's the big thing, right? Everyone thinks that research is slow. Yeah, research doesn't have to be slow. And even research done well doesn't have to be slow. And and so one of the things that we do at uh, my company, which is lovingly called Delta CX, because Delta is all about change. And, uh, <laughs> and you know me, is whenever we have a research project, we put three researchers on it at a minimum. And some people go, whoa, you're so wasteful. Whoa, what's with these bloated teams? Whoa. But these are the same people who believe that six, eight, 10 engineers should be on, on a team. So magically that's okay and that's agile. But as soon as I want to team up some UX people, whoa, everyone clutches their, their pearls. So I think first of all, research can go faster when we put more qualified people on the same project. So you can put your UX team of one on a thing and it'll take them X weeks or whatever amount of time. You can put your UX team of one on three projects. Many companies say, ah, we don't have that many UX researchers. You're going to have to work on product A, B, C, D. And then of course, nobody's happy. This poor researcher can't juggle all of these things and do any sort of good job. And so we gaslight that person. We say, well, you're bad at time management. Uh, you're not good at research. Maybe research isn't even that important, but we barely gave that person a chance. So number one thing that can, you know, like what problem can't we solve if we throw money at it? So yes, researchers cost money. They get paid, but you can solve some of your speed problem with research by putting more qualified people on it. 
Now, a lot of people think, oh, research needs more bodies. I'll just put engineers on it. I'll put marketers on it. I'll put product managers on it. And I say, your mileage may vary. If we happen to have someone who is a great researcher, then they are helping me. They, they are taking work off my plate. They are helping the project be more efficient, higher quality. This is great. But when you throw someone at me who isn't as good with research or, or expects me to teach them or has a, a way of doing research that would be considered poor, now you're slowing me down. And so it would be no different if we said, whoa, our engineers are a bottleneck. They're slow. We need, we need, what are we going to do? And someone says, quick, throw an O'Reilly book at a marketer, you know, put, you know, (laughs) put the marketer, get them on an O'Reilly book and get them on the engineering team. And the engineers would go, this isn't what we needed. So I think that, yes, I understand the need to, for everything to be now. And it's hard to change people's minds about, I need it now. But that's where I think we need those strategic product managers who can say, look, we can get you this now, but here's the risks. Here's the risks of running with what we think we know, our assumptions, our guesses, our opinions, and we make that decision today or tomorrow. Or here's what it would look like if we gave a team of researchers, you know, and I'm just going to make up some numbers here so nobody should please fall out of their chair, but two weeks, four weeks. You know, obviously I'm saying weeks and that already makes some people nervous, but what if, you know, somehow an engineering team working for one or two sprints doesn't make people fall out of their chairs, but as soon as researchers want one or two sprints, everyone falls out of their chairs. And that just tells me we don't really know what researchers do or why or how. And that's okay. If you don't know it, go find out. But I think that, look, we're not, if speed is the number one priority, then you dump your product managers, you dump your QA engineers, and you probably dump your business analysts. And you just have your leaders tell developers what to make. And it'll be just like it was 25 years ago. Developers will lay out the screens as best as they can. And that would be fastest, wouldn't it? Well, we know that that's fast, but not the best. So we bring in QA. QA should test the code. We bring in business analysts who have to take a look at What are some rules we make sure we don't break, among other things? We bring in a product manager and say, can you look at this strategically and help us make decisions and balance some stuff? We bring in UX to say, you're the best at design, you do the design. And so I think that we really need those strategic leaders, product, engineering, UX, CX, marketing, whoever they are, to say, look, sometimes this isn't going to happen tomorrow. Here's the risk. How much risk are you willing to take on? Here's a story about the last time we did this and how badly it went. Do we want to repeat that or do we want to try something different this time? And that's tough. That's going to be cultural. That's going to be your personality. That's going to be the environment in which you're in. That's going to be the job market because some people say, man, if I, if I actually talk back to these people, I might not have a job tomorrow. I'd better say nothing and tap dance. Tap dance. <laughs> and, and so, look, I get it. Sometimes in an environment like this, you just want to keep your job. I get it. I'm not going to tell you that's wrong, that there's good reasons to tap dance in an, in an economy, in an environment like this. But in a better one and where we want people to be empowered, I think we do have to pick our battles and sometimes push back on those leaders and executives and say, here's the difference between making this decision tomorrow with the lack of knowledge we have. And here's the difference between getting that 
knowledge and making an informed decision. That's why I run an exercise that I call the knowledge quadrant or the discovery phase knowledge quadrant if you're doing it during discovery, but it's great anytime. And the I, and it's episode 196 on my YouTube channel. So just go to YouTube, right? CXCC196. There's nothing for sale there and I don't keep YouTube ad revenue. So boom, enjoy it. It's free. So the idea there is preferably a UX researcher, if you have one, would run this exercise where we've got a, uh, a mirror board, hashtag not sponsored, run it however you like. And we're collecting from the cross-functional team and even the larger stakeholders. At my current job, I send this thing to 38 people. And we're collecting assumptions, guesses, opinions. What day do we, do we have that might be outdated? Remember that focus group we ran in 2018? Might be outdated. What do we wish we knew? What information would I like to get that would help me strategize, prioritize, make a better decision right now? really drive our product direction. What do I wish I knew? And I think that when we put that all down on a Miro board, before we even do the research that would answer some or all of those questions, we get to have a really good come to Jesus moment, as we say in America, where we say, wow, this is all the stuff we don't know or aren't sure of. What's the risk of now moving forward with a solution or an idea or an experiment when we don't know all this stuff about people, behaviors, decisions, context, systems, technology, whys, all the whys that we don't understand. And so I think it's important to start doing these things that open up these conversations. And I think we have to have conversations about risk. How much risk are we willing to accept? Again, it's difficult to disagree with a lot of that. And I guess a, <laughs> maybe a part of the disagreement would be around who does what. And again, the speed and the kind of the, the pressure that you get from other parts of the organization and like how good is good enough. And we've all worked for those CEOs that just know, you know, in air quotes, they just know what, you know, they, they, there's nothing that they don't know. They just know, they know it all and you just got to go and do it anyway. And I think, yeah, the phrase that you said earlier around like your mileage may vary, right? Like there's, there's going to be some places where this just doesn't work. Sure. But speaking about those places, and you just touched on layoffs as well, that was another claim that came up recently and something that I think is an important one around this idea that approaches like, for example, continuous discovery and almost like the handing off of research or user research to non-researchers is basically contributing to user researchers being laid off. Now, for the record, just in case it's not clear, I don't want user researchers to be laid off. Thank you. I've worked, <laughs> I've worked with some wonderful user researchers in my time when I've been lucky enough to work at a company that has them. But is it really possible that people are being laid off because of a book that I assume approximately 0.1% of business leaders are even aware of, let alone have read it? Yeah, and it doesn't even require a leader to read it. So first of all, is it possible that these layoffs are happening and that in some, but not all cases, the the finger is pointing at Teresa's book or Teresa's methods or something with Teresa's name on it for better or worse with apologies to Teresa in advance. <laughs> I do have people in my community who have opened up and told me stories that have sounded like everyone at my company was told to read Teresa's book. Soon after that, the product managers announced that they were doing research and they were running research and soon after that our research team was laid off and we were told 
that we uh, were not needed because thanks to the stuff in this book, product managers can do research. So while I can't say this is happening most of the time, that, that would be unfair to say. I think it would be fair to say this does happen. This is happening. And I think it would be probably a spectrum that in some cases, there's a direct finger at continuous discovery habits or Teresa. And I think in other cases, there's a more indirect amorphous finger that says, hey, look, we've decided to become product first or product led. And we've read some books and we've gotten some training or whatever the case may be. And we learned product managers can do these things. And so we're going to have them do it. And we either need no UX people or we just need some UX people to help product managers not suck so much. And so I, I, so does it exist? I think it would be very hard to say this doesn't exist. I believe the people who have come to me and have said, this is what just happened at my job. I was told that I have no job anymore because thanks to Teresa's methods, UX people aren't necessary. And so it does exist. We also have the statistic that in the last year or year and a half, 73% UX has seen a decrease in jobs, 70, roughly 70, 73%. These jobs don't exist. These jobs were wiped off the map. And you would have to ask yourself, why? What happened here? Of course, I care about why and root causes. So why? Now, the answer is obviously not always going to be Teresa Torres. That's unfair. That's not, that's not the right answer here. But that could be the answer some of the time. But whether or not the answer says Teresa Torres, many of the answers, but not all of them, have been, well, we don't need these people. Product managers can do it. Now, sometimes a product manager has been, hooray, I'm going to be invaluable to this organization. I will tap dance and, you know, I'll do the research. I'll do the design. I will do whatever keeps me in this job, in this wacky environment we're in when you and I are recording this in early 2024. And some product managers have been like, uh, no, I don't have time for this. I don't want to do this. I have a great UX researcher who I can tell knows 10,000 miles of stuff more than I do. This doesn't make sense. So we also have stories in my community of product managers who were told, you're going to do the research. Just ask your UX researcher for a little help. But we don't really need the researcher to do the research. You're going to do it. And the product manager pushed back and said, no, this isn't the right way to do this. I am not the best person to do this research. We have a great researcher. Let that person do their job. And it kind of reminds me of what Steve Johnson from Product Growth Leader says, and I enjoy him a lot. I interviewed him for my book. He said he very often sees discussions online where people ask a product manager, what's your favorite design tool or software? And he says, I like to answer that my, my favorite is giving the work to a properly qualified designer. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I love Steve and I've had him on the podcast before as well. He's a great guy He's and fun. I've got a lot of time for what he says. And again, I've worked with some wonderful user researchers and I've, they've been wonderful partners to me in doing user research, of course. And I want these people to be successful. I want you and all of the people in your community Thank to you. be successful. But I am also a fan of Teresa's work. I mean, I've had her on the podcast. I've read her book a couple of times. 
I think ultimately, and I know this is something we do disagree on, that it's a net positive for product management as it challenges product managers who often are stuck in those feature factories, not talking to anyone at all, apart from like the CEO or the sales team. It challenges us to at least try to put customers at the heart of our decision making and get away from those feature factories. Now, again, I know that we don't agree on that point. No, not at all. I'm assuming that one thing that we can agree on is that Teresa or people like Teresa aren't trying to basically destroy the user research profession on purpose. Well, that implies that I have insight into her mind (laughs) and her motivations. You're asking me to tell you if someone I don't know had a particular motivation to do something. And I have to say, I can't guarantee you that. I don't know what her motivation is. And I would have to say, given the private messages that I've received, let's just say I make no assumptions. Over the years, I have met some people on LinkedIn who weren't Teresa. Let's not talk about her right now. There were some other people who I learned really wanted to destroy UX. I've even had people write, I've seen Medium articles. I've, see, I've had people send me private messages. They were product managers and they said, F-U-X, you know, you guys suck. You're this and you're that and, and I hate you and I hate your work and, and I hope your whole profession goes away. And I'm going to do everything I can to to get it there. And I love design sprints and just doing everything as fast as possible with the whole group. And I'm going to make all you go away. And some people are probably listening right now going, I don't even believe Debbie when she says that. But I can only say I don't have a good reason to lie to you because really, I mean, what would what have, what's the right answer to Jason's question? The right answer to Jason's question is to put on little fairy wings and, and go, of course, Jason, of course, Teresa doesn't mean anything malicious by, by anything she does, of course. And, and I'm saying the really tough thing of, I don't know. A- and neither do you. And we don't know. And what if? And that to me is part of critical thinking and part of asking tough questions and having conversations we don't want to have. But I think ultimately, to me, it doesn't matter whether or not any of what Teresa says or does or the, or the harm caused by it is unpurpose or not. Because even if it's accidental, then to me, it's sloppy. You know, no one has ever come to me. I've written, what, three books now, including the, the fourth one that I technically ghost wrote, so my name's not on it. I've got four books out there. I've been doing this for years. No one has ever come to me and said, you made me lose my job. You, my company now doesn't believe in what I do thanks to you. Now, there are definitely people who come to me and disagree with my approaches or methods or they hate me as a person. That's fine. So I've definitely heard shit about my shit, you know, and I think everyone should hear it, you know. So when Teresa says, what? My stuff causes harm? What? And I'm thinking, girlfriend, you know, are you not, you know, you know, it's not always good to read your press, but girlfriend, are you paying attention? So I think, you know, I wrote down two things while you were talking. I wrote down feature factory and customers at heart. And those are two things where I am not sure that Teresa is doing enough to fulfill the promise of the two things you just said. I believe that from what I've seen and heard from Teresa and some others like her, I think the customers in our heart is theater and performative because it definitely doesn't match the work that I believe we need to do to have action, to have customer-centric action. 
I think we say we care about them. I think we do some performative things. I'm going to call three of them this week and ask them what they like. Ask them what they need. You know, this doesn't match the things that we think about or talk about in my world. So to me, it's not enough to say we have empathy. It's not enough to say we're going to delight customers. It's not enough to throw around these buzzwords. I want to know what actions you're taking. And some people will say, well, we follow Teresa's guidelines to research with users early to find opportunities so that our business can meet its goals. And I say, okay, so you're researching with users to find the opportunities so the business can make its goals. Well, will the users make their goals? Where's that on the map? And, oh, it's not on the map? Well, it's implied. Okay, but I don't see it on the map. And so I think that we can say customers are at heart, but it's kind of like the stereotypical American thoughts and prayers. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) You know? And so my concern, so so of the two things you've written down, number one, customers at heart, there's plenty of heart. Congratulations on your heart. What actions are we taking? What actions are we taking? Where's the accountability? And what are we measuring later to show that we really made sure that we deeply understood customers, we didn't go and make a guessing lasagna about them, and then rush out cycles of guesses and wacky crap hoping some spaghetti sticks on the wall. So customers and heart, show me your action around that. And that's going to vary across organizations and, and product managers and even how people interpreted her book because it is so open to interpretation, whereas I try to write in a style that leaves little for interpretation. The second thing that you said was Feature Factory. From my perspective, based on the information I have, which could be incomplete, the things that Teresa is suggesting that people do, in my opinion, continue the feature factory, encourage the feature factory. I don't think they get us out of the feature factory. And I would question how many product managers feel like they have truly escaped the feature factory, that everything we do is highly strategic, both for the business and for the customer, and that we're not just making a bunch of things. We don't just have a to-do list of features. But to me, part of the reason why how we can know we are still in the feature factory is because we are still feature first. We are very rarely user problem first. We're definitely business problem first. I get it. And Teresa's got a lot of that. And I quoted her in another thing I wrote, which nobody saw, so product managers didn't freak out. But there was another (laughs) thing that she wrote that I quoted where she talked about how we have to put the business first, because if you don't put the business first, the company will go out of business. You won't have a job. And it was just extremely fear-based and didn't stand up well to critical thinking. But we know that a lot of Teresa's stuff whispers at users, winks at customers, but is very business first. And I think where I'm different and where some people struggle with a bit is I'm saying these can be balanced better than they are now. And to me, as long as you're feature first, as long as someone says that product discovery is discovering who wants this or discovering who likes this idea, like if you take a look at user-centered design, which is what most UX people use in one form or another, discovering if people like our idea is is later in our process. It's not where we start. 
so when people tell me, like I, I was telling you before we started that a product manager who got caught up in all of the, the recent LinkedIn conversation wanted a private conversation with me and interrupted me every time I started a sentence and eventually basically hung up on me and was, you know, trying to tell me how good product discovery is finding 10 people and seeing uh, what they think of your idea. And my thought was that that's already a feat. Hypothetically, you've come up with a, a possible solution. Whether or not you call the solution a feature or a set of features, you've started with a solution. Now, sometimes we dress it up in a very pretty gown and we call it a hypothesis, but it's still an early solution that is really an assumption. And to me, if you are just validating, and especially if you are purposefully validating, your ideas and your features and your solutions and your assumptions, and you're calling that product discovery, then I think we have extremely different definitions of both product and discovery, because I think we are continuing the feature factory by starting with a feature. In my world, and, and in the other book that I ghost wrote, Disruptive Research, and I mention it a bit in my book, Customers Know You Suck, I talk about how by using certain types of research and techniques like task analysis and optimized task flow, we get at the core of who are these people? What's their context? Habits, needs, decisions, mental models. And that way, it's problem first. Then we can create problem statements based on what we learned about humans. And then we can think about what solutions might work best for the people we understand and the problem that we understand. But when we start out with, I've got an idea and let's ask 10 people about it, or I've got an idea, I'll call three customers. Or I've got an idea, UX make me a quick prototype so we can see if five people like it. We're still in the feature factory. Again, I, I agree that if we're in that situation, and then that is definitely one take on that. And I also don't necessarily think that what that PM described as good user research is necessarily good user research, right. or certainly not generative research. But right, I do. Yeah, I mean, I, I do have to. Maybe, yeah, I mean, I'm not Teresa Torres' bodyguard, but at the same <laughs> time, you know, I don't think that many of the things in her book do advocate for that. Now, I mean, I've got the book here. I'll have another scan through afterwards. As far as I see it, like what this continuous discovery approach advocates is going out there, obviously speaking to customers, fine, maybe not the right people speaking to them as in your mind, you know, maybe we should have different people speaking to them. But ultimately, it's all about sort of selecting opportunities and then working out what you could do and you know, mapping that all out and trying to work out later what the features are. But at the same time, you know, it's a different approach. And I'm sure that, they're, you know, as you said earlier, mileage may vary. Yeah, the main thing that I try to remind people is that you can certainly read any book and you can find a technique that you like and you can say, hey, this thing works. But you don't know if there's something that's even better. You know, Teresa's <laughs> stuff can work. I'm not saying it never works. It can work. And maybe it's better than whatever you were doing before. But what if there's something that's even better than that? And I find that that's where some, some people just fall off the cliff when trying to talk to me is they just want to, they, it's, it's like does not compute. They can't imagine like, well, I really like her book. It's really empowered product managers. My, I'm being paid more than ever. This is great. And I say, well, there, there's other ways to do this. And then people are like, whoa, whoa, hey, hold on. This one works. <laughs> and I go, well, look, if we were going to hold on to, to the things that worked, then we would still all have Blackberries 
and we'd be building things waterfall. And so, you know, there's always, to me, there's always an opportunity to, to look at what else. And I would say, do yourself a favor and don't read Continuous Discovery Habits again to try to see what Teresa says, because in my opinion, and this is going to be extremely opinionated and you can absolutely disagree with me, but what I find from Teresa is that I find her communication vague. I find her communication unclear. I find it incredibly open to interpretation, whereas compare that to me. It's pretty easy to read something that I've written, and chances are you're going to interpret it the way I, I mean it because I, I've written it extremely deliberately. And it's not that I'm saying Teresa doesn't write extremely deliberately. I believe she does, but I believe there's a lot of money to be made in being vague. And I see this from other people as well. I see other authors who are fantastically popular and get squillions of, of squids a day to train people. Because their message, it's very much like the Bible. Teresa can come out there and say the message that everyone can latch onto a piece of it. You can latch onto research is important. You can latch onto researchers are important. You know, we need them. You could latch onto anybody can do research. You can latch onto you don't need researchers so much. They're really just your, your coach. You could latch onto anything. And to me, that's the biggest problem I have with her in a sense, because the it's not clear and it ends up being very much like fighting with people about religion. Because I'll say, look, Teresa is inspiring these, these environments in which there's disempowerment and UX is being told they have no value and blah, blah, blah. And then she might say, that doesn't match what I'm saying. I'm for research and I'm for whatever and go, okay, but then here's all these other quotes I found on your blog where I can see where someone would fire every researcher after reading this blog post. Oh, well, that's not what I meant. Okay, well, you know, I come from a family of lawyers. And if you didn't say what you meant, you were torn to pieces from the time that you could speak. And so, you know, that's why if you read some of the things I've said to her in our unattractive LinkedIn back and forth, a lot of it has been I almost don't care what you say at this point. I think you just need to clean up your communication because I could read that book and, and give you a list of carnage and you could read that book and go look at this amazing support for research. But one person pointed out in, in all the back and forth and said, how come the word UX doesn't appear in your book? If you think UX is so important, why didn't you ever use that term? Why doesn't this appear to be a department of people? Why doesn't this appear to be an empowered department of people with a great UX manager who comes from the work? Why do we make it look like there's a researcher here and maybe a designer here and we don't say UX? And she claimed to have an answer for that and I didn't buy it. And so I think that the problem is I tell people, don't go digging through her stuff trying to support your point. You'll find it. But I can also go digging through her stuff and support my point. And that's where this gets ugly because we can both go to the same source and find opposite stuff. And that's why my big dream for her, that's why I keep telling her, clean this up. If your message is of support to research and UX teams and UX specialties, say that because you're kind of not. Well, let's uh, see how the debate progresses over the next few days, weeks and months. I, I have a prediction there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it'll all be done by Christmas. but uh, Yeah, right. Of which year? Definitely food for thought. But where can people find you after this if they want to find out about 
any of your books, talk to you about your approach, customer or user experience in general, or see if they can get you to sing supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Yeah, that's a, that's a mouthful. So I'm pretty easy to find. Uh, my name isn't that common. Uh, it's Debbie Levitt, last name L-E-V like Victor, I-T-T. My company is Delta CX. My YouTube is CX-CC for customer experience, customer centricity. But in general, I would just love for people to reach out to me in whatever way they want. Write to me on LinkedIn, send me an email, book time in my calendar. You know, I told you, I spoke to a product manager the other day, basically hung up on me in the middle of the call. I'm happy to talk to people. (laughs) I'm happy to talk to people who disagree with me. I'm happy to talk to people who have challenging questions. Sometimes people call me and they say, our UX designer sucks. I have to do the design. Okay, let's talk about this because that's probably not the only way to solve that. So I would love to hear anybody's problems, anybody's questions, anybody's challenges. I don't always suggest tagging me in a LinkedIn post when you want to rip me to pieces because I end up thinking you don't look so good. Fair enough. Well, I'll definitely avoid doing that apart from obviously when we put this episode out so that everyone can come and have a look at it. Say something fair about me. According to you, you agreed with almost everything I said in the whole hour. Please don't paint me. I I don't need this. I don't need more people painting me as the person who hates product or hates product managers or wants to see Teresa burned at the stake. This is not who I am. And this is extremely unfair, even in the name of clickbait. I agree. And I will try and be as fair and balanced as I possibly can be. But I'll Please. definitely make sure to link all of that stuff into the show notes as well as the links to your thank you, thank you. YouTube video that you mentioned earlier and all of the other stuff. Yeah, 196. Book link and everything else. And hopefully you have a few people coming in your direction to find out more and ask some challenging questions. I hope they will. I'd love to help and empower them in any way I can. Oh, here, here. Well, that's been a fantastic chat and still genuinely believe there's more that unites us than divides us, but hopefully we can still stay friends. Hopefully we can also stay in touch, but as for now, thanks for taking the time. Yes, thanks to you and your listeners. Good luck, everybody. As always, thanks for listening. I hope you found the episode inspiring and insightful. If you did, again, I can only encourage you to pop over to onenightinproduct.com Check out some of my other fantastic guests, sign up to the mailing list or subscribe on your favourite podcast app and make sure you share with your friends so you and they can never miss another episode again. I'll be back soon with another inspiring guest, but as for now, thanks and good night.